2 Peter is a difficult book, and I want to begin this text by looking at a verse that is not on your screen, but he's an old man, and he writes in chapter 1, 14, 15, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to recall these things to mind. Um, I don't know if you caught what he's saying in verse 14, but somehow Christ revealed to him he's about to die. Somehow Christ revealed to him that his time is up. What we know of Peter's life and uh, end is not a pleasant uh, story. We don't know if it's true that he was crucified upside down, but that that rumor has continued over the years. But um, he was the first spokesperson for the early church. And um, it's the, the intrigue of the relationship between him and Paul comes out in this book, but a marvelous book. And think about the blessings of Joseph or Abraham or any patriarch who was saying something knowing they were soon to die. And keep that in mind when you read these words. They are hard words, and it may make some of us uncomfortable, but this is nevertheless a page of the Scripture and I make no apology or reservation in walking through it and talking about it, but I want you to keep a certain sobriety about it. I find it interesting that he says, when I'm gone, I want you to remember what I taught. I'll, I'll say it again and again and again and again, Peter is communicating. You know it already, but I'm going to tell you one more time, and that's what we read in this little letter, this little epistle. Um, if we were to look at the three chapters, essentially we have Christian character in the first chapter. Christie referenced that list of incredible characteristics. Chapter two is a confrontation of false teaching unlike anything except perhaps Romans 1 and 2. And then chapter three is the promise of the future. He's reminding them that there's a future. We're not going to get into eschatology in this little uh, overview, but think of these three pillars. This is what the character of the believer is like. This is the false teaching that you're being inundated with, and think about the future. So it's an interesting argument that he's writing, and I think it reveals an older person looking over life. You need to know what you know, what you know, what you know about your relationship with Christ. Are you growing? Secondly, there's a lot of garbage going on. And third, you've got an eternal home. That's a bit of the sense of the letter. Uh, Second Peter is addressing the dangers of false teachers among them, that these false teachers entice and lure away people to believe their stuff. It also is a prevention in a way, because he's saying if you understand you're grounded in Christ, you're going to fare better than, obviously, if you don't know. And there are errors in people's character and conduct you need to be on the lookout for. Um, there's going to be a defection within the community, I'm always struck in Paul's language in Acts when he tells the Ephesus elders when he's leaving that uh, savage wolves will come in from among your own midst. So there's the external persecution, but there's the internal frustration of people that teach the wrong things. Um, the epistle is written to expose the dangers of these false teachers and to warn believers to essentially be on guard. That's a phrase that Peter will use, that they won't be led astray with the error of the wicked. 
Dr. D. Edmund Hebert, who's with the Lord now, I had the delight of corresponding with him many, many years ago. Uh, he's written a number of commentaries. I own everything he's written. And uh, he became deaf in the 40s. And um, delightful interactions with him through uh, letters over the years. But uh, he writes so well. And he says, Second Peter and Jude have been called the dark corner of the New Testament. Because it's hard stuff. And we don't like to look in dark corners. Um, we don't like to be called out. No one likes to be corrected. It is a ringing challenge, he writes, to Christian steadfastness, steadfastness in the face of flagrant false teaching within the Christian church. Yet the message that the epistle proclaims is important. And I, I always resist the, the objective of preaching is not to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is always relevant. The challenge is for you and me to think first century in this case, to think context and to understand what it meant then and how it applies now. And let me tell you, this one is super easy. You don't have to do any homework in first century time when Peter was around writing this because it is such a one-to-one -one comparison. To say it very simply, false teaching is one of the greatest dangers for believers. You may not think that, you may not feel that way this morning, and after we look at this, maybe you will, maybe you won't, um, but I think it is perhaps one of, if not the greatest danger for Christians today, because it is so pervasive. Um, think about the use of superlatives. The most important thing you'll ever, the most important book you'll ever read, the, the best restaurant, we overuse superlatives a lot, do we not? There's only one superlative. And so when I say is one of the greatest, I obviously would acknowledge willful sin. I know something's wrong and I do it nevertheless. Apathy toward God. Distancing myself from the scripture, from the spirit, from his people, living the way I want to live. Those are all dangers. But can I submit false teaching is somehow influencing those decisions? I'm thinking incorrectly. I'm getting the wrong information, and that's why I'm living this way, apathetically, in sin. Um, false teaching at its core is believing the wrong thing or teaching the wrong thing. There are two words that come to my mind when I think of Christians, myself including in all this, how we're deceived is susceptibility and naivete. You and I are susceptible to information, and we're naive. Even as smart as we may become, I mean, goodness gracious, the corpus of doctors and whatnot in this group of kids reflects that you're teaching your children to think highly. That's great. That's wonderful. Set a high goal for your kids. Pray with them. When, when our children were younger, Cindy and I, we, we, we did a little, we'd ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? But what, what I found was a more important question is, what do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? That's a very different question. And I would put it to every adult in this room. What do you think God wants you to be as you're growing up? And this book is going to answer that question at the end. But when we're susceptible, when we're naive, and um, I was telling a friend this morning, I called a friend, uh, two friends this morning coming in early, and I said, I want you to pray for me today, because this is a hard, hard passage, and I want to have a, a, a proper attitude of firmness and gentleness. But this is, this is black and white. 
This is hard information. And I was telling this friend on the phone, I'm not going to step on anybody's toes this morning. I'm going to kick you in the shins. Repeatedly. Not that I haven't already done it to myself. I'm not above. I'm just one like you. Um, this idea that everybody believes something, the trends we see today, and one of the most egregious things I have seen in the last decade are popular men and women who get to a place in their ministry and they start to teach garbage. And they defend their turf. And they sue one another. And they get in fights on social media, which is very helpful, right? Um, you need to have the knowledge that there's far, this scripture is far firmer ground than anything in this world. That's hard because this is abstract. It's big. It seems intimidating. It seems overwhelming, which is one reason we did this big book series, was to say it's not. It does take some time. But a child can read it. A teenager can read it. A college student can read it. And as Christy mentioned so well, you do them again and again and again and again and again. And that's part of what Peter is going to address. If you stand on God's word, it's a better foundation than the isms and ologies and all the trends that are going around whether it's race gender critical race theory whether it's identity whether it's identity politics where it's ideologies whether it's personality assessment tools that you take and chart your life by uh, scripture must needs take first place and if that's hard for you to swallow i don't make any apology because that's where the word of god stands the test of time it's an eternal document given to us by an eternal father. False teachers and false teaching are pervasive, and in Peter's time, uh, we don't know all the backdrop. We know some of it, but our point is um, some of the ways people respond to hard truth, they have to react to it. I, I love this phrase that we've seen uh, commandeer the media in the last, I don't know, five, six years, speaking truth to power. You ever heard that? I'm going to speak truth to power. Can I tell you what that really means? I'm an arrogant you-know-what. Because I have the truth, and they're all wrong. And it's hubris on my part to say, speak truth to power. Try to find that in Scripture. You will find appealing to people. You will find appealing to those in authority. You will find living and conducting yourself in a holy manner. But nowhere does it tell you to speak truth to power. Nowhere does it tell you to make your identity shaped on what the culture says your identity is. But those are the lies that are seeping into the local church. It's, it's open sewage. First Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In this area, I want to think about two words to help us put handles on this. It's discernment and growth. And the first thing Peter is saying here is because of the preponderance of false teaching that's infiltrating the local churches, local assemblies, let's go back to the beginning God gave you everything you need for a life of godliness. And just stop for a second. Do you see that we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture? Is it? 
Do you hold that this book is sufficient for all you need for a life of grace and faith and living? And it's as it's, it's simple as looking at what we ingest, other books, other media, other interests, over against the time we wait against this. If this is the living, active Word of God, it seems to me it should have some prominence in our lives, not everything else that we thumb our way through. It's a fascinating word, not to get too far in the details, but it, I did not know this until this week when I studied this text. Granted to us literally means cast a lot. And it's used twice in your New Testament, both other times in the Gospels. It's used in Luke 1, 9 when the uh, priest would go in to offer incense one time in his life, and a lot was cast to pick that priest. And the other time it's used, talk about cryptic, is in, Matthew, is in John 19, 24, when the Roman guards who are stripping Jesus to crucify him find this one garment that's real nice, and they don't want to tear it, and so they cast lots for it. Talk about unconscious uh, prophecy fulfilling in Psalm 22. This is 700 some years before Jesus lived, verse 19. He says, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So these two times we see it used by gospel writers, and then Peter injects it here. What is he saying? Put it in simple language, you were chosen. You were chosen. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't conclude it. You were chosen. And so what Peter is saying in this verse, his divine power chose you, and he gave you everything you need. And that sets the foundation for what he's going to teach us in this discernment and growth. Simply, the believer's faith should always be growing. This is hard. It's hard at different times of our life. Uh, we get tired. We get lazy. We rest on our theological and biblical laurels. We remember when. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. And then the list of characters. In your faith supply, moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your Brotherly kindness, love. You see how these things build upon one another? This is a long study here. This is four or five sermons in a, in, a, in a good day for me. I would love to go through this line by line and explain what he's saying here. But just look at them from a casual reading. I want you to notice he says, apply all diligence. You cannot grow in a Christian life apart from dis discipline and, and diligence. You can't. You won't. It's impossible. Experiential theology is a ruse. You have to apply diligence. Faith, moral excellence. Moral excellence, not. Think about the cadence of these. If I trust God and I live faithfully, then the next thing is, how am I living? Am I morally unimpeachable? And then as I'm morally growing, what do I know? What do I believe? And now that nagging thing, self-control. Some of you are old enough to remember the salty tapes that we indoctrinated our children with when they were younger. And the, the one they did on the fruit of the Spirit, I, I loved it. I can sing all those songs verbatim still. But the, the self-control is just controlling myself. Doing what is smart. But self is hard to control. 
Holy Spirit fortunately helps us in this regard. Perseverance, you gotta keep at it. You gotta keep at it. You gotta keep at it. You can't stop. Godliness, on they go. So taking this, these three verses, what Peter is saying is, the first, the first point is diligence. You have to apply diligence. If this is the most important text on the planet, if this is God's word to you without error, if it's all you need for a life of godliness and faith, you and I must needs be diligent in this book until you can no longer read or draw a breath. You never stop growing. Chapter 1, verse 8, for these qualities, if they are yours, that's probably since, since conditional, since these qualities are yours, in, are increasing. So there's that diligence, growth, discipline. They're increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. Um, they need to be increasing. They need to be growing. Peter's argument is wonderful. It's logical. God gave you these things. He gave you everything you need for a life of godliness and a life of faith. Now, the way you stay in the game, so to speak, is through this litany of diligence, moral excellence, moral excellence, knowledge, knowledge, um, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, kind-heartedness or brotherly, brotherly kindness, and then brotherly kindness, love. So this, this trend of words he's given you show you if you're a diligent follower of Christ, these are the things you and I should be concerned about. We should grow in these areas. Practice these things. It's a very practical text. You don't need a lot of commentaries and look up Greek words and get rabbit holes you know, into some dark place. This is pretty common, pretty straightforward. The phrase that catches me, and it may have caught you, is that you will be neither useless nor unfruitful. What an interesting way of saying if you grow, you have purpose. If you grow, you're going to have some fruit. Um, I had a friend who named his dog Useless. It'd be more appropriate for a cat, but nevertheless, it fits. <laughs> useless, useless animal. Um, I had a friend who, I won't tell the whole story, it would take a long time, but he was a professional athlete, and his father nickname for him was Stoop for Stupid. He won a Super Bowl one year, and his father, he called his father on the phone to tell him that they'd won the game and talk about the play-by-play. -play. And he said, what happened in that third-down conversion on the da 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 and you, you missed that tackle? And this guy was a hulk of an NFL player, and he cried like a schoolboy. His dad called him stoop. I don't want to be useless. I don't have a father who calls you or me useless. He wants you to be useful and fruitful. That's, that's a pretty good purpose. Wayne and I were talking about retirement. We talk about it a lot. He goes, Michael, you talk about it all the time. Okay, I talk about it all the time. You know what the biggest issue I watch in my peer and older who are transitioning to the next chapter? They don't have a purpose. And they're tired. You and I want to be useful. You and I want to continue to be fruitful. 
good no, good, good, goodness knows we don't want to be useless or unfruitful, no matter how old we may be. The chilling part of the passage to me is that Peter ties it back to forgetting the purification of our former sins in verse 9, which makes perfect theological sense. And I, if I have forgotten how much I'm forgiven, I don't really live that differently. You know, this culture is crazy about guilt and shame. We abhor guilt and shame. Alan Bloom said years ago, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. I'm not saying that's universally true, but that was a point he made. We live in a culture that shame-based parenting and guilt-based parenting is abhorrent. It's worse than torture. We're worried about this. You know, there's some good shame and good guilt, men and women. Let me be here to tell you, sometimes you and I need to feel guilt. We need to feel shame. Because that reminds us of the consequence of our sins, and it reminds us of what we've been forgiven, right? And Peter says, you're blind or short-sighted because you've forgotten what you've been forgiven. Christ will say the same, to whom much is forgiven. I am more likely to forgive others. And then again, the phrase, practice these things. You have to stay in the game. Well, let's continue with this discernment and growth, these observations from this passage. We should always be growing. Secondly, believers must be diligent, increase, remember our forgiveness. We must practice these things. There's a need for what I call ongoing education in chapter 12, 1 verse 12. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. The believer's foundation of faith in God's word, verses 16 through 20 Explain the reliability of the word, the eyewitnesses of it, the proof of it, the prophetic utterances that were made hundreds of years before Christ came on the planet in the incarnation of being a baby. And these are not from men, these are from God. So his argument is stacked. Uh, He's given you everything you need for a life of faith and practice. And it begins in his word. In his spirit who indwells the believer and in the body of Christ. I like to say God's word, God's spirit, God's people. That those three are how we grow, how we change. In my life as a Christian, I don't grow if I'm not in the word, if I'm not submitting to the spirit's control, which by the way, sometimes is a daily, hourly, ongoing battle for me. Maybe you got that figured out, good for you. It's an arm wrestle a lot of the time. He's stronger, and I'm a fooled wrestle. But that's the reality of the Christian life. And then I need God's people, and not just you know, a group of Christians, but people who will speak the truth in love. People who have my best in mind. And you've heard me say many times, my friend Dave Gibson, who preached a few weeks back, he says, Michael, I don't know if you need a dope slap or encouragement. Got a friend like that? Those are the kinds of people in your life, God's word, God's spirit, God's people. No, no, you're right on this one. You Stop. You're wrong on this one, Michael. And if you don't have those brothers closer, those friends closer than a brother, that's a good goal for you to start developing. Chapter 1, continuing 2021, but know this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men move by The Holy Spirit spoke from God. A a verse often used to talk about inspiration, about the inerrancy of Scripture, that God spoke and these people wrote. And what he's saying here is, we're going back to uh, your foundation 
how you came to Christ. He chose you. He's given you all you need. Uh, you want to be careful of these character things. Are you growing and developing? Uh, don't forget your former sins. And then he says, you can rely on the Scripture. Chapter 2 moves very abruptly in some respects to a very difficult list. And this is the condemnation of false teachers. I've not put all of them up, but just a snapshot of some of the things Peter writes about. False teachers deny the master. They follow sensuality. They indulge the flesh. They despise authority. They're self-willed. They're like unreasoning animals. What a vivid picture. Creatures of instinct. They have eyes full of adultery. They forsake the right way. They have gone astray. Just looking at that list, the the visceral part of this is very evident. It does not take a culturally adroit person to say, you know, a lot of that applies today. When we're driven by our passions, when we're driven by lust, by the flesh, when we're like unreasoning animals. Not to be too indelicate, but any of you who've raised a dog, I've never raised a cat, I presume it's the same, there's a time of year that animal is uncontrollable. And you lock them in a cage or you're going to have puppies or kittens. Right? That's an unreasoning animal driven by instinct. We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. Our eyes are full of adultery. What a horrible, vivid picture. You know, I often uh, review the section where Jesus says, you've heard it say, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you in Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8. Because each of those, Jesus turns up the heat, if you will. You've heard it said, if you commit adultery. I say, if you look upon a woman with adultery in your heart, you've already committed it. I'm toast. You're toast. If we don't understand what Jesus is doing in those sections, he's saying there's no righteousness apart from being in Christ. You can't do this in the flesh. Can I tell you something you already know? Maybe need reminding. You cannot make your flesh better. You cannot make your flesh better. Jesus didn't die in your place on your behalf instead of you to help you have better flesh. He died to enjoy you with the Spirit and conform you and transform you into more and more the person of Jesus Christ. That's the index. That's the litmus. That's the person to whom we want to live, not what the culture may say. Verse 18, speaking out arrogant words of vanity, enticed by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, look at this, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The church is flooded with raw sewage. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. I go back to that again and again and again in my own study, and I talk to you about it over and over again because it is paramount to understand why we're tempted. When Adam and the woman were in the garden and she knew the one prohibition, Don't eat of that particular fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat it you will surely die. The Hebrew is wonderful. It says, mot to moot, dying you will die. The moment you eat it. She eats, he's complicit. He doesn't stop her. And I believe Adam took a bite because he wanted to be with her. 
That's my theory. I could very well be wrong. He did not interfere with her. And there's no, there's no storyline. Some of we've seen animation or whatever that Eve's off on her own eating the fruit and he's, you know, fishing. Contrary, the text says she gave to him and he ate also. Nothing in the grammar indicates she's, he's somewhere else. So he's complicit. And when they fell, they fell far. And the eyes, were, they were enlightened. They knew good and evil. It wasn't what they thought. You see, Satan's half-truths are always whole lies. Yeah, you'll be like God. That's half-true. But it's a lie. Because you're going to know good and evil, meaning you're going to find out what sin is all about. What did they want? What did she want? To be like God. Truth be told, that is man's condition. Every one of us in this room, at the end of the day, wants to be God because we do it in our own image. We do it in our own design. We do what we want the way we think it should work. Um, we're not identified with Christ. We're identifying with a la carte sin. We're identifying with speaking words of vanity that fuel our sensual desires. We become slaves of corruption. This is hard stuff. The problem with sin is it's insatiable. It could not be more clear and it could not be more chilling. When you and I choose to sin, when you and I make a vocation of parsing the Bible, that's not what it means. It's not culturally relevant. It doesn't mean that the culture's changed since the first century. Paul hated women. The big word is misogynist. Paul's a misogynist. You'll read that ad nauseum if you read feminist literature that hates the Bible. They'll say, Paul was a misogynist. He hated women. I'm sorry, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Christ and the apostles gave more attention to women than any other, quote, religion, close quote, has ever done in, since the beginning of time. They're co-heirs. And Peter will talk about that. She's a co-heir of the kingdom of God, right? We sanctified our sin. We throw away self-control. We find ourselves enslaved, and we're happy in our slavery. But it will never free us. That's the delusion that Peter is saying. For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. It promises you freedom, but it shackles you for life. And to break free of those enslaving sins. A lot of addiction language has worked its way around in our culture. And um, for better or for worse, the idea is that you're addicted to something, that it controls you, you don't control it. That's a valid observation. Any addict, whether it's substances or food or whatever you want to fill in the blank, recreation, uh, any addict can't stop doing the thing that is destructive. And the irony of sin, and I learned this late in life, um, maybe you'll learn it sooner than me, all sin is basically an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end, meaning God has provided a wonderful sexual intimacy in the confines of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Other ways of trying to find sexual intimacy will be sin and insatiable. All sin at its core is a misappropriation of something that God has made away. The problem is, do I submit to his way or think I know better? And Peter, I think, is touching on this. By what a man has overcome, he's enslaved. We want to be enslaved to Christ, which actually is freedom. Because we're aligning ourselves with truth, not with deception and lies. 
Chapter 3 is another sweeping survey that we might summarize. Trust God at His Word. Uh, Verse 1, remember God's Word. This theme of remind, remember, it doesn't bother me to teach you again is throughout this little book. Verse 3, know that mockers will come mocking, following their own lusts. It does not make, it doesn't take much thought to see how this applies today. If you stand up and say, I believe in a heterosexual monogamous lifelong marriage, as I do, I'll be mocked, I'll be hated, I'll be vilified, and there might be a time in my life story that I will be uh, charged or criminally charged or sued because I said those words. Because it's intolerant. It's unkind. It's not loving. Don't let the world teach you theology. I beg you. The frogs in the kettle are parched. They're boiled. They're floating on top of the water now because we don't have the courage, not to be mean-spirited, to say, wait a minute, no. God made man and woman in his image. God created them male and female. He created them. That's not debatable. Well, the culture is going to debate it till their mockers are going to come mocking. Um. It's been sad to watch, and again, we could track this. Some of you are older than me, but as I look back on 40 years, I look at certain decades, and I don't mean to throw these organizations or movements under a bus. I want to make an illustration with them, so please be, bear with me. When the Signs and Wonders movement began, largely out of California, that swept across the country in a very interesting way. See, Peter Wagner and John Wimber were sort of the leads on that voice. Some of you don't know what this is about. Some of us may remember it. The vineyard churches, a lot of them came out of that movement. There was a lot of good in what they were saying, but a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff too. And as that thing grew, uh, their message got flatter and flatter and flatter. Eventually, it's pretty well gone. Then we had the seeker movement. And there were some big churches in the country that really branded this, and they sold it. And you could become an associate and pay big money to be an associate of this organization. And that thing about seekers, and we're talking to seekers, took a huge sweep across the country. Then Purpose Driven came along. I have great respect and love for for Rick. But that thing lasted a period of time, and people started worshiping the thing. I remember him saying that they had a problem with church services because people came to see how they did Purpose Driven Church. They became a tourist attraction. He said, we never, we never wanted to do that. But because of mist in the pulpit as a fog in a pew, that thing took on its own life until eventually they sort of rolled up the sidewalks and you don't hear much about it anymore. And we can go on and on and on. I'm simply trying to illustrate trends, isms, ologies, new things do not last. This lasts forever. Can you clearly see this text no matter who's talking about it. If you have a popular teacher you like on YouTube or um, you watch their, you know, you pay for their materials or whatever, or you, you have a favorite Bible teacher that you watch online, listen carefully. Be discerning. Do not be led astray. Don't confuse verse 7, interesting verse, God's patience with tolerance. God doesn't tolerate sin the way we use the word tolerance. Another word that's been so hijacked by our culture. You're intolerant. 
Well, God, now I feel bad. No, I'm going to be intolerant. That's wrong. That's sin. When my children were younger and they did something wrong, I had no problem saying that's wrong. I didn't ask them how they felt about it. You can, you can mock me for that. You can ridicule for me that. I don't care. That was wrong. You treat your mother with respect. Period. I had this little ditty I used to do with my son. He would argue with Cindy. He loved to argue. And he was arguing and arguing and arguing. I'm sitting in my chair with my newspaper, my iced tea, trying to watch a little news. You know, that's what the guy does when he comes home, right? I didn't have slippers, but, you know, waiting for dinner. And I hear, sorry, that's what I did. (laughs) Guilty. I enjoyed it. Um, (coughs) That chapter's gone. It's all good. But he was arguing with his mom. And it just goes up and up and up and up and up. And finally, at one point, I would say, uh, Devin, are you arguing with your mother? And I wouldn't let him mutter back. I wanted clear answers. Are you arguing with your mother? Yes. When you argue with, you know, he, this is, he's done this many times, so he knows the drill. When you argue with your mother, whom are you arguing with? You. Do you want to argue with me? I'm sorry I didn't hear your answer. I'm sorry I need a clear answer. No. What do you need to do? Mumble, mumble, mumble. What do, apologize to my mother. Sorry, Mom. Excuse me? Uh, excuse me? I want you to say the words, Mom, forgiving me for being disrespectful and arguing with you. Now, the cool thing about this parenting technique is I never got out of my chair. <laughs> I could do it from across the room. Sometimes we need to just say these are wrong. I wasn't angry when I was saying that most of the time, majority of the time. I was trying to get him to understand something. We're one. You don't get in between us. And like it or not, you call me a chauvinistic pig. You won't be the first. There's something about the man's weight in the room that makes a difference with children. I don't understand it all. I'm not call me a misogynist. I'm in good company with Paul. I'm simply saying there's something about the weight of a man in the room and I would be remiss not to say for you single parents, you single moms, I have nothing but compassion and empathy for you because it is hard enough. And that's why you need that really good community around you. God's word, God's spirit, God's people to help you in parenting, especially from middle school on. But let me just side, side, sidebar say, you know, most of the you that I meet with younger children, Cindy and I are blown away with your maturity and how you're raising these kids. I truly mean that. We're astonished at some of you young couples and how you're raising your kids. It encourages my heart. It encourages my future for what's going to happen when your children hit those hard, hard years because you're doing such a great job. Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. Moms, don't lose heart. Don't get weary of doing good. He'll honor you. He'll honor you. God wishes all to come to to repentance in verse 9. We're to live holy. We're to look for his return. That's one of those things that's hard to do, is it not? I mean, anybody but me find it hard to look for the coming. I ask some people that are really old. I'm not that old. They're really old, and they can't wait for Jesus to return. How many of us with a hand on a Bible and swearing an oath or saying allegiance, whatever you want to do, would say, I'm ready for him to come back right now? No, we got some things we want to do. We, we got some grandchildren we need to spoil a little more. We want to take that cruise. I mean, we're, we're asking for hot dogs, 
versus the feast of eternally, eternality with Christ. But that's how, you know, the hot dog tastes pretty good. I like that for a snap when I eat it, right? Be diligent, be on guard. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All these injunctions point back to this, do you trust his word? Do you trust him at his word? Since these things, chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. He's talking about the fire. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? False teaching is more common than you and I may want to acknowledge. False teaching is so pervasive when people send me things and ask me, have you seen this? I really don't want to enter into it because before I get started, I know something maybe about the person or the books they might have written. And it's cross genders, men and women. I have this theory, and I should say it as a theory, and I should say it in pencil. Be careful of the uber popular Christian. Be careful of the super popular Christian. Be careful of the number one list in books or music Christian. Be careful. I'm not saying throw them out, baby in the bathwater. I'm saying use your noggin. Use your theological mind. Because some of these people are wrong. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are leading people astray. Someone asked me the other day about, do I get nervous speaking? When I was younger, I, was, I had butterflies and sweats, and my stomach would be a mess. And I guess I just got old and jaded. But what has happened to me is, as I get older is I'm not worried about what you think of me. I really, I don't care. I don't mean to be callous or unkind. Maybe I am. I don't care. I don't care. Because I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. And I'm going to incur a stricter judgment than you. Because I chose to do something. Nobody made me. And I'm going to stand before him. And I will incur a stricter judgment because I stood up and told you something. Now, many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. That's enough anxiety. That makes the hairs on the back of my neck are momentarily up right now as I'm talking about this. Because I believe that to be true. And as I prayed... Almost every time I open the Bible in front of a room of people, I say, may your words be remembered and my opinions be forgotten. I say that almost every time. I say, overcome the limitations of a man and use me in spite of me. Almost every time I open the Bible. Because I know I'm going to report to him one day. He's the captain. He's the chief. He's the high priest. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the one who died for your sins and mine. I represent him. You represent him too. I'm just going to have a more strict judgment than you. And I don't mean this to sound cavalier or condescending, but when I look at some of these people that are in mainline media, mainstream media, they got thousands, millions, or whatever, I want to be far away when they see their Savior. Some of these men and women are false teachers. Some of them have the gospel encased in part of what they're doing, but it's so interlaced with garbage theology. It's so interlaced with false teaching, with humanism, with, with personality tests, with critical race theory, with social justice information. 
All of those things have a valid place to be discussed, but when you open this Bible, you better say what God says, not what you think. I want you to have the courage to trust him at his word. Not to be afraid. You don't have to go out. Every, every person is not a nail and you've got a hammer. That's not the point of this. But you read chapter 2 sometime this week and you tell me what it's saying. I'm going to lean on God's word. I'll err on the word every time. And if I'm wrong, you know what? There's a commander in chief that's going to tell me about it. And I don't want to be wrong because I don't want to lead him astray. But I do know this. I'm not afraid of men, but I am afraid of God. Be full of the fear of God. Be free of the fear of men. Don't live in fear in a sinful, insane culture that has no interest or affections in what, quote, the church is supposed to be about. You don't have to go out and be angry, step on soapboxes and scream and yell at people that live differently than you, but you have to ask the question, are you going to rest on his spoken word confidently? I end with a question taken from verse 11 of chapter 3. Just tweak what Paul said, and I want to put it as a question. What sort of people ought we to be? What sort of person should you be? By God's measure and standard. Not mine. Not some popular teacher. Not some latest trend, ismology, or whatever. What sort of people ought you be?